At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter by the qualities that are most important to you. Then, book free 15-minute consultations with any therapist you're interested in seeing. And because 95% of therapists at Alma accept insurance, you can find care that's affordable to you want to talk to someone but not just anyone alma is there to help you find the right fit visit helloalma.com therapy 30 to schedule a free consultation today that's helloalma.com therapy 30 hey i'm brett podolsky co-founder of the farmer's dog we make fresh food for dogs we started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog jada when she stopped eating ultra processed kibble and started eating fresh whole food the farmer's dog food isn't fancy it's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs it's better for them and easier for you get 50 percent off your first box at the slash podcast that's the slash podcast Hello, Rise Together fam. Welcome to another episode of this podcast. I am still Dave. I am happy to be here with you, and I'm happy to introduce you to a new friend, someone who I have just come to really love, but also appreciate the work that they do. His name is Brett Bartholomew. He is the founder of Art of Coaching. He's a performance coach. He's the author of the best-selling book, Conscious Coaching, and he's a globally recognized keynote speaker. The principles in his book and the courses that he puts out to the world have been applied and adopted by world-class athletes, members of United States Special Forces, Fortune 500 companies, nonprofit organizations, and universities nationwide. Please welcome to the Rise Together podcast, Brett Bartholomew. Welcome to Rise Together. My name's Dave Hollis. I'm the host of this show where we're going to hopefully have you feeling a little more normal in this, the human experience. Maybe see yourself even in some of the stories that are told or have your appreciation of what it means to be human expanded by someone who's come on as a guest who's had a different life experience. In all of it, we are trying our best in community to learn from each other, to grow, and maybe even have a little bit more compassion for what it's like to walk in each other's shoes. When we do, we all rise together. Hello, sir. Hey, Dave. How are you? I appreciate you having me on. Oh, it's so good to have you here. I appreciate you taking the time. I was uh, honored to be on your podcast. And uh, man, it was like one of my favorite shows that I think I've ever done because there's something about your approach. There's like a no nonsense, no BS kind of take to getting to the core of what's really going on that I aspire for, that I think like some of my shape-shifting, some of my people-pleasing sometimes deviates from. And I just like, I just really respect the way that you've come at trying to help people get to the bottom of what's keeping them from their best, even if it sometimes means punching them a little bit in the gut. And I dig that about you. Well, I appreciate that. You know, and I think you're selling yourself short. Your episode is definitely one of the more popular ones we've had on our platform over the past year because you went places most people aren't willing to go. And I think you just have a world in general right now where people are really tired of kind of cliches. They're tired of one size fits all advice. And so, uh, you know, we try to bring an economy to our language and internally we, re- we we talk about our work as the goal is to be the most respectful kick in the butt you've ever gotten. 
while also coming from an informed place. And I thought that you did that extraordinarily well yourself. So we're just trying to compliment that and continue to to bring that same kind of value to your audience. Oh man, I appreciate it. I've I've been lucky enough to become friends with Mel Robbins over the years. And she has this same characteristic that again, I just aspire for. Number one, she is who she is, who she is. It doesn't matter the situation, doesn't matter the people that are there. She's always who she is, but also she's the person I go to when I need to have someone just kind of like tell me exactly what I need to hear, even when I probably don't want to hear it the most. And it's part of what I love about our friendship and, and what I love about the work that you do. I, uh, Gave a little bit of a bio there, short as uh, as it was, but would you give a little bit of your own story and your own words to the people who maybe maybe don't know you yet, and uh, and a little bit of even maybe why you believe yourself to be on this planet? I know that's a big concept, but uh, I feel like we're all here for purpose, and uh, I think you're living yours out, my man. Sure, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll give uh, a synopsis here, and if there's anything that's interesting, I'll I'll go more deeply into those things, but I'll try to stay away from, well, I went to college here and then I was born. Uh, so the, the gist of what got me on the path that I am on now is when I was at a, uh, when I was about 14, 15, my parents had gone through a really rough divorce. We had just changed schools. A lot of my friends at the time, uh, people that I grew up playing sports with, I was a really competitive athlete, you know, they had gotten into some pretty hardcore drugs. So this was a big life change for me. You know, I didn't really want to be home a great deal because parents were fighting when I was at school. You know, my social group had kind of switched over dramatically and I really channeled myself into training, into health, into fitness. These were things that I was always interested in. Uh, I was probably a little wound a little tight at that age for your average 14 to 15 year old. And it just, I put a lot of pressure on myself to live up to that quote, be the change you wanted to see. It just felt like everywhere I turned, there were flaky people around me. And I was trying to figure out who I was. So at this point in time, you know, I, I wasn't the most popular kid in school because I really wasn't a big drinker. I wasn't a big partier. I kind of just always had this sense of what I wanted to do at a young age. Regardless, I took this stuff too far. You know, I started really kind of isolating myself. I would train after school. I would train after dinner. I would do push-ups and sit-ups at night. I was reading whatever I could about nutrition, which at the time, there wasn't that great of advice out there. You know, you were reading stuff on men's health and muscle and fitness. You're 14. You don't know where to find yeah. excellent advice. It's not like I dial up a dietitian. And um, this was a time that low carb and low fat were both in vogue. So like any good absolutist, I did both. Well, eventually this manifested itself really into an eating disorder. Training was a way to deal with anxiety. Training was a, a way for me to deal with anger. Training was a way for me to micromanage a lot of the emotions I had at that point in time. And so I was in and out of some in uh, out of patient eating disorder clinics, places that really didn't help me so much. They dealt with a lot of body image issues and things like that, that really weren't the core of, of what I had. It wasn't like I was scared of pizza. It wasn't like I was scared of being uh, overweight, but anytime you would voice these things, they just kind of said, hey, you know, this is the illness making excuses. They'd talk right through you. Um, this is where you need to be. So in and out of these places for a while. And eventually I had blacked out when running several miles around uh, our school, which was common. A lot of athletes, it was a bigger school, would do after lunch or after school one day. And I, I had woken up and my family was like, hey, you know, you're going to go to an inpatient eating disorder hospital. At this time, to give you frame of reference, I'd gone from 130 pounds to 96 pounds. Oh, wow. But anybody, yeah, yeah. I mean, but anybody that has dealt with any kind of depression or darkness in their lives may be able to relate to this. You know, 
it very much felt like a ghost in the machine at that point in time. Like I was just, it wasn't like I was trying to lose weight. You didn't really look at yourself this way. Just a lot of anger and a lot of anxiety. So I spent a year of my life in a hospital in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where you were woken up every day. Your blood was drawn at about 5.30 a.m. You were stripped naked. Depending on your BMI, your body mass index, they would determine whether you could shower because the initial shock, in my case, of hot or cold could send you into cardiac arrest. Wow. Your meal plan was decided for you. And you spent nearly eight hours in a 600 to 700 square foot room with other patients surrounded by windows under complete and total observation. And I'll, I'll get to the crux of this in a sec. But just to give frame of reference, this is a place where, because most people don't know this about eating disorder hospitals and that these things are, like this are still in existence. You know, they're really cautious of you standing or fidgeting because it can burn more calories. You can't chew gum. You could not, anything you watch, read, or listen to had to be approved. Dave, if you stood up, they would knock on the window as a warning. Wow. If you stood up again, Another warning, if you did it a third time, you were given a boost, an insurer, or you would be fed intravenously, wow. you know? And so, you know, this was a place that every week you had to see therapists and psychiatrists, and they wanted to give you antidepressants. And a really interesting thing happened that informed my approach now. They would come in and do kind of group therapy sessions where everybody would tell their story. You had a 60-year-old woman who her husband had left her, you know, she was struggling with self-worth. You had uh, a girl that was in the middle of like nine children. Her eating disorder was a way to kind of keep attention on her. You had a junior Olympic wrestler who missed weight during nationals one time. His father beat him. So food became a mechanism for that. But everybody was there for a reason that wasn't really food related. All right. And during the group therapy session, you know, people would say what they needed to say to get the check mark, you know, that they were compliant. But when they left, when the nurses and doctors left, you'd hear what really was going on. Yeah. And so long story short, once I had gotten out of that hospital, you know, I had gotten into, and, and we can dive into more of that later if you want, but I had started working, I, I went to college because uh, I wanted to learn more about the human body to keep people from dealing what I had to deal with. Thankfully, a therapist that really was able to get across me, helped me get out of that dark time in my life, got out of that hospital, regained the weight. And for 15 years, I turned that into a career working with professional athletes from a strength and conditioning standpoint. And specifically made my name working with problem athletes, the people that were rude, uh, that people couldn't coach, the people that whatever, for whatever reason were labeled as, you know, the, the folks that you hear complained about on sports center. Oh yeah. But it was that time in the hospital that really helped me understand like, yo, the complexity and the darkness of people is where you want to dive into because there's so much there that most people don't even look into because you know, it's hard. And yeah. So now today why I'm on this earth is, you know, a one size fits all approach to dealing with people nearly cost me my life in several ways. When I was in that hospital, I saw it cost another person their life because they weren't able to reach them. And I just think that there is a lot of stuff I wish I would have known earlier when it came to power dynamics, dealing with Machiavellian people, dealing with the darkness of yourself. And I just want to share that with people in a really practical, accessible, non-wishy-washy way. Man. It's so cool because I think there's a part of me that's like, man, I wish you hadn't had to go through that. And then also you wouldn't be doing the work that you're doing if you hadn't had to go through that. Like you wouldn't have the insight, the empathy, the insights to actually help people in the way that you do. And so in a bizarre way, but also a beautiful way, it's like you went through exactly what you needed to go through 
to be able to have the equipment to actually help the people that you're helping, whether they're problem athletes or just everyday Joe Schmoes like me. Well, and I think this is something that, you know, you, it's the same with you, right? And you've been very open about the different things that you've gone through. And I think that we forget the best way to deal or help others deal with the darkness in their life is you have to go through that stuff yourself. Yeah, I think that creates a really good filter. I think it helps you know at various life stages who you are and who you aren't. But I think it also, the, the concerning thing at that point in my life was just, you see how many people still struggle with this from a medical standpoint, but also from whether it's corporate leadership, coaching on the sports side. I mean, universally, people are dealing with people problems, at, whether that's intrapersonal within or inter at an unparalleled rate because the world is just getting more and more complex. Yeah. And where's the book that teaches us how to deal with this stuff other than the typical tomes that are like, look people in the eye, tell the truth. Honesty is the best policy. Be positive. Like, sure. But there's also more nuanced aspects to you know, the, the socially complex world that we're in now. No, I love it so much. And I love, it's part of what I love about your approach because there's a lot that I like in personal development and there's a lot that I take issue with in personal development because the one size fits all kind of take this and you'll be fine is good for some and completely not applicable to plenty. And there's something beautiful about the nuance, as you say, in identifying that, hey, everyone's got to have some somewhat of a specialized, individualized approach and some context for what their process or their experience was in getting them to where they are so that you can actually give them a gift of here's how to get from where you are to where you want to go, understanding some of the details of what you've been through and understanding some of what ends up being, of course, hard, but also a part of your experience stuff that you've had to process. Yeah. Well, and these things lead to a framework, right? Like then it starts leading to operational principles within your life of saying, all right, what did I really learn from this? And, you know, whether it was my time in strength and conditioning, my time in the hospital, our time transitioning into reaching an entirely different audience now in general leadership development, or the stuff that we're doing within power dynamics, like without a framework, it's kind of like those, those lessons are wasted. Yeah. And so I think the most valuable thing that came out of that hospital experience is if I had any advantage on on anybody or a pre, another version of myself, if the metaverse was real, it's that when you spend a year in a hospital, you know, you you have time to ask yourself some really hard questions. I mean, it was like me, Eminem in my headphones and whatever books you were allowed to read. Because other than that, there's there was no exercising. There's no leaving the hospital. I mean, this is Minneapolis, Minnesota on the eighth floor, talk about like seasonal affective disorder, but I spent my 16th birthday in that place. And so I just think being able to have some stillness and solitude and reflect on, you know, the reality, the messy realities of life and leadership sometimes gets you ahead, even though it may not be fun. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing. However you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launcher online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. 
sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odysseypodcast, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash odysseypodcast now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash odysseypodcast. It's so cool, though, that you got so much insight at such a young age. I mean, I like I wouldn't wish it on someone. And also, like, what a gift, because you had to go through an incredibly hard thing. It produced so much good. And some of us at, you know, I'm 47, I'm still having breakthroughs and I'm having them usually because of super hard things having been presented to me. And there's a part of me that has envy for, man, I wouldn't want to have to go through what you went through, but I do envy the fact that you got to go through it at 16 to produce a little bit of the insight that allowed you to think differently about what your 20s and 30s might mean, what your purpose put into practice might mean. There's something beautiful about it. I mean, coaching is your game right? Like artofcoaching.com is uh, is the website. If you are interested in learning anything more about Brett's work, I mean, like it's so freaking great, but you list a bunch of words on that landing page about what coaching is, teaching, leading, listening, learning, mentoring, adapting, managing, caring, supporting, like I'm sure you could go on and on. I have a coach. I know that most accomplished athletes have a coach. The most successful CEOs have a coach. And I also know that there was a point in my life where getting a coach was a thing for me that felt like I'm maybe I'm broken because I need a coach or if, if I have to get a coach, does it mean that there's something wrong with me for needing one? And I just like, I just attribute it so much to ego, like, ah, oh, get out of the way. Of course you need a coach. Of course the most elite athletes still depend on a coach helping them get better every single day. As a coach, what is it that you think keeps most of us from actually reaching for what I would describe as a fast pass to actually getting to what we need or what, or what we might be able to break through from if we had somebody with some outside perspective helping us see what we need to see? Yeah, good points. And and one thing I want to say, and this leads into the answer that I think you do exceptionally well and better than others, is you use the term coaching how it's meant to be. Uh, a lot of people think that that term, somehow the, the sporting world has a monopoly on that term. It doesn't. A coach is, as you alluded to, and we say on our website, a guide, a teacher, a mentor, a helping hand, all these things. I think that sometimes there's just what keeps some people from getting it is the stigma that it's not for them or it's not in their space or anything like that. But the reality is, is everybody needs a coach on the journey of life for the same reason everybody would benefit from having a map yeah. or a GPS if they take a road trip. You may have an idea of the general direction, but like, what what are you really willing to risk based on that bias? You know, and so coaches, obviously, they help you discover blind spots. They can help save you time. It has nothing to do, like, people think that there's this paradox of if I need a coach, as you alluded to, I must not be good enough. That's not true at all. You know, like the, the reality is, is that you have a cheat sheet and you need somebody to be able to see the world from a 10,000 foot view, uh, you know, but here's the reality. Like if you think, why do people seek out coaching in the first place? Not that dissimilar from why people seek out leaders. People want security, right? Like autonomy is great in people's eyes. Oh, I don't need a coach. I want to do until you realize like, it's really all up to you. I think a lot of people wish for autonomy. They wish for those kinds of things. And then when they find themselves in sticky situations, 
they really crave feedback. So a coach is going to give you that feedback. It's going to help guide yourself. It's going to help make sure that you're aware of these biases. Um, also, just from a human nature standpoint, people hate uncertainty. You know, people are really honest with themselves. And that's one of the reasons they crave feedback. This is all interrelated. So a coach can help you navigate uncertainty, ambiguity, chaos. It can help you get, um, you know, just a devil's advocate take. I think they bring more out of you. But the last thing I'd say is people just need to get over this whole imposter phenomenon or even better than average effect, which is a psychological principle where on average people with a better than average effect rank themselves higher than average in terms of things that uh, help them be perceived as more virtuous, as more moral, as more competent, as more likable. A lot of times people just have to realize like, listen, like none of us are as good as we think we are. <laughs> yep. And and we've all heard, oh, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Well, then imagine what a coach is worth because the most expensive thing you will have in life is bad advice, right? And also experience isn't something you get till just after you needed it. Well, with a coach, you're multiplying that. So it's not saying you're not good enough. It's saying here's somebody that can be a force multiplier and what you do while also kind of just helping you protect the downside. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so funny. I have a, my next coaching call with my coach on December 16th. I know the day I know the agenda. We talked last two weeks ago and the, the role that this person plays for me so many times is actually confirming my knowing like I have an instinct, I have a gut, I want to go in this direction. And then I have all these negative voices that start trying to tell me why this thing that I know isn't a thing I should know. And when I sit with my coach, my coach is like, what are the voices coming from? Where are they coming from? Who gave them credibility? Why are you listening to them? You know what you know. And there's this beauty in him redirecting me to what I already know that is less about giving credit to he as a force in my life, as a reminder that I already am the force in my life and that I need someone to come and remind me of what I already know. And I think that's part yeah. of what the role of a coach ends up being. That, and there's a really key distinction that I want to make between this two, because we had, and I'm going to share a, like a marvelous failure we had, but it also lent insight into something that I think we as a society need more clarity on. We, we once had a client, that they had said, Hey, I'm seeing a therapist, but I could really use a coach. And we had said, okay, well, you know, let's get to know each other better. We're talking about these things. She was in the corporate space. And one of the reasons she said she really wanted a coach aside from just a therapist is, you know, she's like, I want somebody to actively disagree with me. You know, I need somebody to kind of push me a little bit. And I don't really feel like I get that from my therapist. Yep. I get a therapist that will listen to me and kind of do motivational interviewing and all this. So said, okay. So we line up a session, we do, we go through it. We, we always use a lot of tactical role playing where we'll use scenario planning. If she had, she had a particular problem, we gamed it out four different ways. And then we engaged in a series of three minute role playing scenarios where either I or she adopted a persona and just to prepare, right? The same way uh, uh, an athlete is going to scrimmage and practice in different scenarios. It's not fourth and one, but they're going to practice as if it is because you need to put yourself in those situations. And she was pretty, you know, after it, she was pretty heated. And I, she was just like, this isn't what I expected. You know, I, I'm, I'm not really happy with it. And we were like, oh, okay, you know, let's try to, let's try to resolve this. What could we have done better? Long story short, she calls back 24 hours later 
And she says, I want to apologize. I didn't realize how uncomfortable getting what I actually wanted and needed was going to be. Right. I said I, I, said I wanted somebody to not agree with me and not just feed into the echo chamber that is my head and my immediate network. I got that and it felt uncomfortable and that's what I needed. And, you know, I, I, don't, I hope that makes sense. It's just like people should not get a coach if they don't want to be, you know, countered. People should not get a coach if they don't want a devil's advocate. People should not get a coach if they just want somebody to tell them how great they are. Yeah. Like a coach may do those things at times. And in your, like the sense that you gave, it's like warranted. A coach also needs to build you up and do this, but a coach also needs to push back and be like, Hey Dave, not the best idea. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I, I even think of it too, through the lens of there are a lot of times when I'm making emotional decisions and I need someone who can make analytical decisions or objective decisions and the, the role the coach ends up playing is they don't have the same emotion that I have. They're not as connected to the things that I'm connected to. And they don't have all the history that I have in programming or anything else that might have affected the way that I feel about this thing. And so for them to be an objective arbiter of, hey, from my perspective, and frankly, from the perspective of almost every other person that isn't you, this is a pretty simple choice and going left <laughs> really makes sense for all these reasons, except for the emotional thing that you're holding on to. And then it has me having to like dissect, oh, is the emotional thing that I'm holding on to a good thing? Is it a right thing? Where did the emotion come from? Why am I even still stuck in this? But without the coach, I don't get the opportunity to even ask a question because I would have otherwise just made the emotional decision and it might not have been the right one. I might have, you know, I might have decided to go right instead of going left when every other person absent of the emotion would have said left was the right thing to do. Yeah. I mean, no question. And by the way, it's not just you or me. We generally, as human beings, make decisions on emotions first. Yeah. And then we back them up with logic. It's like, oh, that new iPhone looks good. And oh, you know what? It would help me be better at marketing or answer my emails or multitasking. And and Professor Antonio Damasio of USC, and I have to go down the nerd route with this stuff because it's really a lot of my doctorate now is like, yeah, like we're gonna we're emotional-based creatures. So to your point, it's an excellent example. You gotta have distance. And I, you know, if you're my coach, you're not going to be as emotionally attached to the situation as I am, vice versa. But I just think that that's an expectation that's been lost in society, where we have a lot of these conversational outputs that do become echo chambers. You get a coach because you want to be pushed out of your comfort zone. And because you actually like you you want to engage in adversarial simulations, again, from a positive standpoint, right? Like what I, I just tell people you're you may not always like me, but I promise you're not going to be in the same place when we're done, you know, and and how you define progress and clarity is up to you. But I can I, I'll tell you this. Most definitions are going to tell you that's not being in the same place. Yeah. You know? So good. So. I know for me, like so many people I'm working with right now, heck, myself, even in the changes that I've experienced in my own life, they feel at times that they have lost themselves like I had an identity, it was taken away or I took it away. I, I was something before I became something. And there's, there's a question of like, who am I now that I'm no longer who I've been is this thing that comes up. And I'm wondering, as you as a coach lean into helping people understand who they are, if they feel like they've lost themselves as a person in a relationship, as a parent or a partner, an employee, 
What advice do you have to someone who's working through the feelings of lost? And is there a tool or a process that you have in helping them feel more found? Yeah, there's a few of these things. And this is probably one of the better questions I've ever been asked on a podcast. So thank you for that. And I really appreciate how you meta communicate how this is not just a relationship thing. This can be a transitioning careers thing. Yeah. This can be moving to a new country. It can be any of that. And so nobody's problem is, is greater than or less than anyone else. Uh, mine is probably going to be <laughs> somewhat muted compared to somebody who maybe uh, has gone through, you know, maybe somebody listening has gone through a tremendous, like a, a death in the family or a relationship ended. But I know one thing that, that this touched on with me at one point is just switching careers, having 15 years built up, trying to be everything I wanted to accomplish in strength and conditioning in the world of sports, and then saying, okay, now I'm going into the broader leadership spectrum, right? To even uh, like to think that I even have to quote unquote compete with the likes of like a you or a Mel Robbins or anything like that, which of course that's not the term any of us would use, right? Non-zero sum as we compliment, but like, this is a, I, I was like, I just gave all that up and now I'm a nobody in a new field. And, you know, we started a grassroots business and there were people that were like, why'd you quit coaching? And I was like, quit coaching. I'm just coaching people in a different way now. But yeah. I realized that my public persona there were people that they didn't really understand how to make sense of this transition. You know, I know when my wife had broken up with her significant other before me, she was trying to figure out who she really wanted to be and what, you know, what, because there were just people that thought they were going to be the perfect couple. So we all go through this. So there's a few things. One that is just, uh, it's almost so simple, but the fact is it works, right? You do simple things savagely well, there's, there's a reason for it. You've got to find solitude. I found that I, whatever that is, for me, that would be hiking in the Blue Ridge Mountains. That could even be something as silly as if you went up to my closet, I have a separate computer screen and monitor there because I'm somebody, well, what I found is like, I would get my most the most clarity when I was in a hotel room when I was traveling or the airplane, places where I just felt closed off and not as accessible. Yeah. So whether that's out in nature, whether that's a room in your house, whether that's you need to take a trip, find some sense of solitude. Otherwise, the noise is just going to continue to hit you and hit you and hit you. I think another thing is mentally and emotionally just kind of purge whatever that inner nonsense is. A heavy bag is great for this. You know, for some people that might be going to therapy, I think this is an idea where you can't look at the one size fits all stuff, right? You, you look online, it's going to tell you, you know, talk to somebody, do this, find peace, join a yoga class. Cool for some people. For me, a mixture of solitude and tremendous exertion physically was a huge thing for me. That almost leads into the next tip. I am somebody that if I want to change my psychological or even physiological state, because we do know that part of finding yourself again and getting clarity of thought is creating some kind of physiological change in the body, hormone imbalances, chemical responses in the brain, emotion happens through the years. So I have a playlist of songs that just take me back to certain points in my yes. life. Yes, yes. And as twisted as it is, Three of the songs on that playlist were things I listened to on a loop in the hospital at one of the saddest points of my life. But, and I think, you know, feel free if you tell me if you don't agree with this. I think sometimes we have a desire when we go through these hard things, we're trying to find ourselves to keep examples of previous wins present. And that's great. You can like the old improv principle. Yes. And, but if you were to look at my office, I have three or four things or these songs, for example, that remind me of the darkest times. Oh, I'm with you, man. Selling a little or a lot. 
Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow, whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits. Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast i sat on the back patio that is on the opposite side of where i'm looking at you right now listening to ben rector there's a song called sailboat and it is in my playlist. And I force myself to listen to it to remind myself every once in a while of what it felt like just immediately after divorce. Because yeah. number one, I've made a lot of progress from that guy who was feeling like he was lost at sea. But also, I, I, there was something in permission to feeling okay with being lost in that moment that makes me feel okay with being lost in any moment. And so I have to like, I have to bring myself back to it every once in a while because I get to celebrate and feel normal. Right. And I think that, that that's a perfect example. All in all, and I have to be careful how I phrase this, but I also just want people to be discerning. I do think that in, in general, if you want to get better at dealing with those things, actually leaning into the dark side of things is, is more beneficial than you think. Now, there's got to be stop gaps on this. I'm not talking about going off and engaging in self-destructive behavior. I'm talking about just remembering like those moments are the things that shape us. It's the shrapnel that gives us scars that remind us of those lessons. So to just go into happiness wonderland is a little bit silly. And it's just, it's almost like when people have, and again, I'm not crapping on people that use morning routines and everything else, they can be valuable. But if every part of your day is so structured and so optimized, are you really resilient? You know, mm. and that's, that's the same thing that happens when we're trying to find ourselves and surrounding by positivity. Um, the other thing I would just say is explore, travel, ponder. A big part of our workshops, we utilize improv. We create self, safe places for people to fail, explore the range of their emotions and personalities. And I just find like if you're dealing with a world that's inherently chaotic and ambiguous and increasingly fast paced, well, the better you can lean into that or the more you can lean into that in some aspects, the better. So solitude, music, moving, keeping reminders of the dark times close. Uh, I just wanted to give you guys some things that maybe you haven't heard everybody else say and every other website say. I love it. Hey, guess what? There's plenty of times where I don't feel like running, but running for me has become this super cathartic church meets therapy kind of experience. And there are times when I tap into the darkness and I run further and faster than I've ever run. And it's it's because I need to work through whatever it is in that darkness that hasn't yet fully been processed, but it's beautiful, even if sometimes it sucks. It's like, it just, it, it just is. 
This leads it like nicely into a question about motivation because for me, it's been a super, super interesting thing. I have found it to be more a byproduct of momentum than a thing that is just naturally occurring inside of the universe that we operate inside of. I'm curious what your take on motivation is and if you think it's something that just happens for some people and doesn't for others, right? Like if someone's currently struggling to feel it, what tips do you have on helping them manufacture it if they end up being someone like me that doesn't have it readily available? Yeah, so a couple of things here. One, looking at getting really clear about that term motivation you know motivation is it's funny because especially coming from the sport coaching world like rousing speeches and like rah-rah tactics fare really well in movies and in some (laughs) situations life as well but motivation is not really an external matter as much as it is an internal one so for example when i would tell people that would say well how do i motivate this person i'd say think less about how do i motivate x to do y And instead, maybe even ask them, hey, what conditions need to be present for you to do this thing? Oh, that's good. There was nothing more like, I mean, listen, I have a master's degree in exercise physiology, but I have two parents that are not active and don't follow health advice, will never, ever listen to me. The expert's always out of town and it's never their son. And, you know, so what I just did is I I made the, what I always try to do is I try to educate them which that's the classic don't do this, right? Like logic does not change people's behavior. Neither does information to a point. Like we're all familiar with those anti-smoking campaigns of the early 90s. Those by themselves weren't really successful. But then when they started putting more visceral examples of, you know, a woman with a hole in her throat that was like, I eat breakfast through, you know, or they started like that hit on the emotional triggers. So what I realized, and I'll extrapolate on this in a moment is, you know, for my parents, I just had to do little things like now there's a foam roller here in the house. Now there's a massage gun. I had to make things more accessible. Like everything just had to be accessible because environment to a large point dictates behavior. It's the same thing I'm dealing with now. I always try to use myself as a case study because I never want to seem like, hey, I got it figured out. I'm trying to do my PhD right now, write a new book, run a business and be a father. There are sometimes I found that I am way behind on my writing not because I don't know what to write, but I don't really want to go into my office. Just, it was such a busy year. I attribute my office with stress. It's cluttered, it's messy. And then I realized, well, I don't need to. I can take my laptop and I can go into a different environment. I can do this. I can do that. I can like create your the environment and the conditions you need to get something done. Like it is not like... Sure, if you want to look up YouTube videos and all that, but like for me, I know I have a certain playlist, a certain environment, those things will help. And by the way, that helps things last, Dave, because then those people are accountable. Yeah. They have to be accountable to like, all right, these are the conditions necessary because by and large, people are driven or influenced by four things. One, we already touched on it, environment, and that can be perceived environment, You know, actual environment, Las Vegas is a great case study. Look at the tens of millions of dollars they do to perfume the air, no windows. They know what behavior they're trying to elicit. There's social factors. What is everybody else doing? Which is another piece I say about motivation. Like motivation fails because reminding people of rules or values they should adhere to doesn't change their behavior. They're more likely to follow an example, you know, And, and you're a parent. I watch my son. I can sit here and say, don't do this all I want. He's going to follow my example more than he is my words. Yep. People are social creatures. So maybe you just got to get around different people or go to a coffee shop if you're trying to get work done or join a whatever that is. 
Um, another thing is timing. I think that this is one of the most underrated things about motivation. You might not feel motivated right now because maybe you just came out of an extraordinarily busy season, you know, or maybe you never gave your time yourself time to recover. We had to deal with that with athletes all the time. Sure. You know, it's just like, Hey dude, like the issue is not more training. You need to recover. Like right now you could look at me. I'm not really motivated to go do a bunch of workshops right now. Cause I just did 23 this year, traveled 85,000 miles. I I'm motivated right now to just be home for a while. Yeah. I think like give yourself grace of looking at the timing and we're recording this around the holidays. This is probably not the best time to be like, I'm going to lose a bunch of weight. No, you're not. You're going to have to go to your in-laws. You're going to have to travel. You know, you're not going to get all your workouts in. So quit beating yourself up. Instead, think about something, the minimal effective dose you could do right now. Maybe you're four days in the gym lifting becomes two days lifting, but an everyday go for a 30 minute walk thing. Yeah. So I, and then the last thing is just drives. And this is where I'll, I'll, turn it over. So drives, very interesting, very different than motivation. Drives are subconscious influencers of behavior. People can be driven by all kinds of things. My wife is a security drive. She loves information. She loves having a plan. My neighbor is a unity drive. He wants to be around people, whatever he does. Some people are uh, adversity drives. Like they love hard things. They want to put themselves against the wall, whatever. So you have to think about, you know, what, what is it that drives you? And this is, again, creating those conditions. I've been told all my life, don't procrastinate. Fact is, Dave, I do some pretty damn good work when my back's up against the I wall. I am the don't same. You? I am the same. What's interesting is it almost sounds like a love language kind of thing. Like you all have individual wiring and understanding the way that you're driven will actually have you manufacturing the motivation that you'd hope for if you can lean into that drive. Extraordinary said extraordinarily well. And we have it's a free quiz anybody can take if you're comfortable with me sharing it. Do it. You just go to artofcoaching.com. What drives you? Free quiz, very simple, gives you strengths and snares. And and this was just critical. And we tell people to take it at least three to four times because your mood will impact your answers. Take it when you're riding high, take it when you're not in a good space, take it when you're crumbling. Because the, all these personality assessments that people do, it's like they take it once and they're like, oh, that's me. <laughs> like, yeah, no, these things are moving targets. So all in all, you could simplify it by saying like, you know, before this, people would say there's two types of motivation. There's like approach motivation and avoidance. So some people, somebody might join a gym to get in shape. That's approach motivation. Or I'm writing at my keyboard because I want to get my book published. Some people might join a gym to not gain weight. That's avoidance, you know, like, yeah. or I might say, Hey, I don't want this book to suck. So I'm going to do that. There's not one that's better. It just depends on the person. Yeah. And I think when you can give a language to these things, you're like, Oh, this is just me now. And I'm okay. And this is how I work. Now I can create the conditions that I have an awareness of this and we can facilitate more progress. What's crazy for me is I feel like success and failure have both had a lot of effect on momentum around motivation in my life. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Like if I've achieved something that I've been working on for some time, I feel like I'm more often than not being taught a lesson of having meant to appreciate the process instead of the destination. Like I get to the place. It's not as fulfilling as I thought it was going to be. I wish that I had savored a little bit more of what was happening on the way to the journey, in the journey or on the way to the goal uh, instead of the goal itself. And when I failed, man, I get stuck in like super limiting beliefs where I believe that I am my mistakes. I don't know that I can recover from them. I'm wondering if you could talk just a little bit about the way that success and failure shape how we think about ourselves and the way that that momentum affects our ability to continue reaching forward to whatever ends up being next. Yeah. Nobody has ever accused me of not being, you know, pretty loquacious, but this is one that I think I can be pretty tight on. (laughs) Uh, Just your actions are not your identity. Don't become your identity, right? An action is not an identity. I know we hear it. Like when people show you who they are, believe them and people are what they repeatedly do. Sure. But like not all the time. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think there's just too much of people letting actions become their identity. And there's some things, you know, I'm getting to know you better. I don't know you in totality, but I think in terms of some folks that just dwell on things, which I can be guilty of as well. You just have to remember, like, we definitely can make a dent in our own local universe, but man, like we're just not that important in the grand scheme of things. And I say that from a place to be freeing, yeah. not as a place to be rude. Oh, no, it's good. I, I need to hear it all the time. Like I, it's, it's such a weird thing, but sorry, sidebar. I had a conversation re- recently. I had this new kid's book come out. I'm talking to somebody about the fact that this kid, kid's book came out. And I preemptively start describing some of the struggles that I had when my previous book came out, when the question of how I approached releases or if I did them well, or if I ever stepped in shit never came up. Like I was going out of my way to try and, I think because of some kind of defense mechanism, like I'm going to, I'm going to say it before you can say it. And I'm like, oh, wow. I got out of the interview, talked to the person at the publisher. I said, this guy had no concept of any of the things that I was worried about him potentially asking about because I am not that cool and it is not that important. And yet, because it's super important to me and I have a lot of insecurity about these certain things that happened when I made mistakes, I feel like everyone knows those mistakes. And that's just, that's another sign of ego. That's just like an inflated sense of self that is ridiculous. And I love this like opportunity for freedom from it because it's like, please, none of us, none of us have uh, as much to worry about as we think we have to worry about. No, I mean, because the reality is, and again, you know, give me some grace here for anybody listening, understand what I'm trying to say here. You know, unfortunately, if you and I were to like die today, right? After about a year, aside from our kids, our, like our immediate family, loved ones, like people just kind of like the world spins. Yep. That sucks. That's really sobering. And periodically during the holidays, people are going to be like, oh, Dave and Brett, you know, the day, but like, but it's real, it's real just because there's always, and it doesn't mean you can't make it. It's one of the reasons I like having a podcast. And it's one of the reasons I would imagine you've done like the benefit of you having some of this work is 
even if that did happen, now you got a time capsule. Yeah. So I say to people, worry less about that and worry more about getting some of the things that are more most meaningful to you out there in a way that the world can use it because you know you're strong because you have doubts. Your your imperfections are great. It makes you more relatable. And I think that it's just, yeah, it's it's remembering these things. I think the other thing is quit, don't beat yourself up so much. And I'm talking to you, Dave, now about having an ego. Like for as much as we hear ego is the enemy, ego is also just a reality. Yeah. What that tells me, because anybody could see anybody that interacts with you can tell the difference between an ego that is mainly about wanting to make a difference and wanting to do better and caring about your work and still wanting to manage, you know, things like that. And an ego, like I'm the best and yeah. ego, like this is another thing. I think people think of that as like anybody with an ego is a narcissist. It is impossible to not have an ego. Yeah. It's about how you manage that. And the fact that you're self-aware about managing yours puts you in a pretty safe space. Well, thank you. What's, what's crazy is I've had a few experiences. When I left uh, working at the Walt Disney Company, 17 years, good run, I was like shaken by what happened in the four weeks after I left. And what happened was they had success after success, and no one called to make sure that they were doing it right from the guy who was previously doing it well. And so where I like had lived in that environment for so long. And every time someone left, I was like, oh my gosh, you're going to be so missed. I realized I only missed that person that left for a few weeks of time. And then our life just kept on going. And I became one of those people who also left and their life just kept on going. But it's a beautiful reminder that like, there is some self-importance that I think we have to kind of hold on to or do, even if we don't have to. And it's not until we're outside of that environment that we get to see we're all replaceable, that people, in fact, will have their lives move on, and that our ability to now, in seeing it, be freer from the worry of, oh, what do they think or what will it mean? Like, it doesn't mean anything. And not in a, like, nihilistic way where, like, nothing means anything. I'm just mean, like, it doesn't mean as much as you think it means. It's a gift. Be free. Yeah. No, absolutely. And by the way, I remember reading the book, The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand, And it was this idea, you know, I'm oversimplifying the book, but the collectivist versus the individualist. And I had worked for an organization that I was very proud to be a part of, but they, they like ripped the individual out of you. Like if you even tried celebrating a win, even tastefully, it just was not okay. It was the team, the team, the team, the team. And it became, you know, like any of these things, this is again, like we got to get better at living in the gray area. Either of those things to an extreme are not good. You know, and this is where you think about like life is a big circle. You go extreme as an individualist, you end up the same place as you extreme as a collectivist, right? Unhappy. And generally, by the way, people that try to convince others that, you know, everything you should, everything you do should just be for the common good. And it's about everybody else. A lot of times you look at history. Those are people that try to take over the world. Yeah. With the hell, you know, like, yeah. and so, like, don't subdue the individualism. Everybody listening, your stuff does matter imposter syndrome and phenomenon are just like, that's good. You should worry. You should feel like you've never arrived. The most accomplished people on earth feel that way. And you know, like it's all going to be okay because we're all a huge mess. But if you don't double down on what you think and what you believe in right, wrong, or indifferent, because it's always going to be a mix of those things. You're never going to find your audience. You're never going to make an impact because you're just going to walk on eggshells, second guessing yourself constantly. So good. This dives in right to what I wanted to go to next in that, I feel like we all have this knowing and instinct, a gut, and that anxiety 
so often is when it shows up as an alarm that we are acting in opposition of what we already know, right? Like we know something, but we're behaving in a way or we're thinking in a way that is deviating from the thing that we know. And when we know we could or should be doing something, whether it's because of fear or doubt or a desire to be loved or any other thing, we're denying part of our knowing for safety. And that anxiety bell shows up and it's ringing to try and get us closer to alignment. That's my take on anxiety. But I'm curious what your take on anxiety is and how you encourage people that you coach to respond to it in ways that might make it a resource rather than a liability. Yeah, I mean, I I think that people have to realize that if you're anxious, that means you care. If you're nervous, it might mean you're unprepared. There is a difference between anxious and nervous. That's good. If you're anxious, you care. If you're nervous, you might be unprepared. And by the way, you might feel a little bit of both sometimes. You know, those things happen. But this goes back to, again, my time coaching athletes. If somebody is competing in the Olympics, what am I supposed to tell them? Like, don't be anxious. That That is horrible. Like, I'm denying things that they feel that, like, positive thinking is, this is, again, it's it's tricky. You're asking somebody. You're then making them, they already feel anxious. Then you're telling them they shouldn't feel anxious, just think positive thoughts or whatever. But then they're going to put more pressure on themselves and stack that because they can't think positive thoughts. No. The most empowering thing I can tell you is feeling anxious means you care. Being nervous means you're unprepared. Differentiate between the two. But there should not be any like this is this is like people have to realize that whether you feel angry, whether you feel anxious, whether you feel scared, whether you feel hopeful, we have this range of emotions and they all have a purpose, right? There's a reason human beings have this in our cachet. So I think you just have to leverage that when I go speak or when I go do something like, man, the the other week I had to create a new presentation in probably less than 30 minutes because we had some travel mishaps from one trip, we had an issue with our son, everything that could have gone wrong between trips went wrong. And I had to like land, make a presentation in 30 minutes, the Wi Fi on the plane didn't work. I'm up in front of 500 people, which is like nothing compared to what you have spoken in front of but it was just a it was a big group for this. And like to get up on stage is like, I'm they go, how you feel? I go, I'm anxious. And they go, well, can we do anything? I go, no, I just need to get out there and go. Yep. And let's sit. And what you'll find is when you lean into that, it focuses you and the filter becomes tremendous. And this goes back into sometimes the power of procrastination. And I know I'm giving opposite advice of what a lot of people do. When you feel anxious, like you want to harness that and say, what matters right now? What is the thing I can focus on? Screw your notes, anything you wanted to speak on, what matters now? Say it, you know? And by the way, if you mess it up, Congratulations, you have a version 1.0. Everything on this planet now has software updates. You just need to go through a software update, iterate, get data. But you know, people don't get out there and do it and just deal with those nerves. I have no idea how we're supposed to get better. Yeah, well, it's all information as it turns out. It doesn't mean that it tastes good while you're being informed, but when you're making a mistake, it's teaching you a lesson. When you're going through a hard time, it's teaching you a lesson. If you're following what you think is your gut and it turned out to be your fear, you're being taught a lesson. Like it's all going to be lessons in the end. I want to talk about making big decisions, if you don't mind. Uh, since we met, man, I've been faced with a few big old life-changing kind of decisions where I find myself really balancing this practical part of my brain against this instinct that exists or my knowing telling me what to do. 
I, I tend to be a pretty practical, pragmatic person. Safety and security has always been somewhat of a North Star. I push against it all the time. And yet, I have this hard time when it comes to making big decisions of knowing, am I listening to my fear? Am I listening to my pragmatic self? Am I listening to my knowing? Do you have a process or a framework that you help walk people through in coaching that helps them make big decisions when they have the same kind of tug from multiple sides? Yeah, we were just doing something. I pulled it up to make sure I, I uh, quoted appropriately. We, we were dealing with somebody that was trying to figure this out, whether they should move for a job or not. This was their decision. And so we have what's called an opportunity matrix. And, you know, we basically say, hey, you need to list out some of the personal, social, financial, aspirational needs, whatever this thing is, right? We could go on and on, but just lay these things out. Like, so for an example, from a psychological safety and security standpoint for them, that was like, is this job going to give me appropriate stress? Their last job was too easy. Uh, at the same time, will it give me vacations, holidays, we, you know, whatever, how will it help my physical needs? You know, or how will it address that? Just like you look at Maslow's hierarchy, right? Yep. And here's the thing. When people are making decisions, the most important thing you can do aside from listing out values or all those points is always think in the context of compared to what? Well, this would be good compared to what? Well, this is expensive compared to what? This is risky compared to what? So with this matrix, we tell people to list out their three options. Let's say I'm, I'm moving to Dubuque. I am going to move to L.A., I'm going to move to New York and it could be anything just out of sake of time that we have, right? I'm going to give this example. And then they're going to list one of those factors. Okay. Pay. Great. If I take this job in Dubuque, what, like, is this going to give me the best pay? What's the reality? Even if it gives you the best pay, are you now in a more expensive city? You know? And so you start laying these things out and you might say, man, I thought this opportunity was going to give me the better circumstance here. But then when I weighed it up with the fact that it's actually further away from the airport or it's a more expensive city or it's more expensive here, like whatever that is. Yeah. Another example is somebody was like, oh, I want to go somewhere where there's nice weather. Well, they were in a job where inherently they weren't going to be outside that much. And this was like a pretty 365, you know, type of job. And so it was like, hey, I understand that you want to move to San Diego, but like, what's the factor importance of that at one out of 10? Oh, that's a 10 weather. Great. Now, what is the rating, the likelihood that you're actually going to be able to get out there and enjoy that weather as much as you think? Uh, probably a six. Well, that's a differential of four where another job, you know, you may get a little bit more freedom or travel time where you can go do this. So I just think people, if you don't have a process to lay out the opportunities, lay out the values, think compared to what. And really ask yourself, all right, I rank this at an eight out of 10, but the likelihood that it's I'm actually going to use it because, man, I've lived 15 places. By and large, people do the same shit. Yep. They, in part of my language, I've lived in LA. I've lived in Pensacola, Florida. I've lived in Omaha, Nebraska. I live in Atlanta, Georgia. I've lived in Phoenix. By and large, and whenever I'd say, oh, I'm from Nebraska, people would say, oh, that's miserable. I'm like, actually, three hours to get pretty much anywhere coast to coast. Well, what'd you do in the winter? We took vacations or we talked to people. You know, on the other hand, when I lived in LA, it's not like I drove up to Big Bear or went yeah. to, you know, the, the beach every day. I mean, did you like, so I just think that people have to just step back, weigh those things up, think compared to what, and be really, really realistic. Um, and then also if none of that works and you're like, Brett, that's absolute trash. Here's the thing. Life is improv. Go, yeah. go do something, get the data, get the information, figure it out. 
nobody's got the answer for you. Take a risk and then just be ready to grow from it. It's so funny. I play it on both sides when it comes to this very example, because on the one hand, life is short. Go. If it's wrong, you can always go back to what wasn't working before. Like, just go. But also, there's a term in AA, which is geographic therapy, where you put all of your eggs in the basket that by just moving, now everything's going to be perfect. And that's, yeah. bu- and that's bullshit too, right? So like, you, like, just because the things that aren't working here, like you're moving with the one constant that will be moving, and that's you. And so like, be realistic on what it is that you ultimately are bringing in one location or the other. Uh, living in one city or the next isn't probably going to solve every single one of your problems if you're not solving some of the problems that exist at home. Yeah. The last thing I'd say to that is just at at the very least, you know, you know, you're not going to win by selling out to certainty, you know, like sometimes it's just really that simple. Like, tell me how I'll tell people they're like, well, tell me how this is going to work. I'm like, tell me how doing this and wallowing it is going to help. Like at some point, just buck up, make a decision and roll with it because nobody's got all the answers for you. You just have to use good mental models and foundational thinking. And then if get away from it for a little bit, go see a movie, go do something where your brain can turn off. And then, you know, the answer comes to you in those incubation periods. A lot of times for sure. 100%. Well, I have like eight other questions that I'd like to ask you, but we're running out of time. So we'll probably do this again at some point. Uh, if someone is not yet familiar with your work, if they want to follow you on the gram or anywhere else, like where do you send people to learn more about your coaching, about the work that you do, about how to follow you on the interwebs? Yeah, best way is just artofcoaching.com. You'll find access to our podcast, our social media, our online courses, our live events, all of it from anywhere. All of our work is open to every profession. If you want to deal with the messy realities of leadership, you value understanding what makes people tick, uh, communication, trying to be more persuasive, any of these things, of course, for ethical reasons. That's that's the best way. You can find my first book uh, on Amazon, Conscious Coaching, and hopefully, Lord willing, the, the second book will be out in 2024. We'll see, though. Let's go. All right, final question. We ask every guest if you could offer... A single piece of advice, some motivation, inspiration, anything that's on your heart that you believe a listener today needs to hear. Mr. Bartholomew, what do you think this audience needs from you today? Yeah, I already told them about, you know, embracing the dark side more than people think you should. But given the nature of some of the questions today and and people just braving uh, uncertainty and ambiguity, everybody go sign up for an improv class. Go take six weeks of improv. Realize that life is improv laugh a little, have fun, normalize failure. You'll be a lot happier for doing so. Brett, I appreciate you, brother. You're a good man, good friend, and you're doing good work. And I hope that everyone checks out artofcoaching.com and uh, checks out Brett's new book when it comes out in 2024 uh, between now and next week. If you uh, got anything from this, please tag myself, tag Brett in your socials. Tell every human that you've ever known in your entire life that there was something good in this for you. And we will see you next week on the Rise Together podcast. Thank you, Brett. Thank you, Dave. Hey, y'all. While I am taking a hiatus from social media, I'd still love to stay connected to you on the regular. If you head over to mrdavehollis.com, I have an opportunity for us to become one-way pen pals. Yep, I'm going to be sending out regular updates, uh, stories, uh, observations, hopefully things that will also make you laugh or think 
uh, and I'd love to be able to do that on the reg. So if you uh, are so inclined, hit MrDaveHollis.com, drop in your email, and buckle on up. I love you all. Thank you for all the continued support. Let's go.